From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works special report, Vietnam and the Presidency. There's no greater test of a president than leading a nation in war. I can't get out. I just can't be the architect of uh, surrender. Vietnam tested four American presidents. No matter what mighty army you are, conquering a foreign land, you cannot win against an insurgency that springs from the population with their traditions and their religion and their culture. As America fights a new, increasingly unpopular war in Iraq, the lessons of Vietnam become more vital. We didn't lose Vietnam, we quit Vietnam. We strangled our effort. In a democracy, it is hard to tell mothers who have already lost sons that the war they died for was actually a war of choice and not necessity. I'm Ray Suarez. In the coming hour, Vietnam and the Presidency, a special report from American Radio Works. First, this news update. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works special report, Vietnam and the Presidency. I'm Ray Suarez. What do you think about this Vietnam thing? What, what, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit. President Lyndon Johnson picks up the phone in May 1964 to talk about the conflict that will consume his presidency. Vietnam is not yet a full-scale war. Johnson's advisors say he should send in U.S. troops to help the government of South Vietnam fight off its communist rival, North Vietnam. Mr. President, if you were to tell me that I was authorized to settle it as I saw fit, I would uh, respectfully decline to undertake it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a damn worst mess I ever saw. Like many U.S. presidents, Johnson seeks advice on difficult issues from a range of people. Unlike most presidents, Johnson tapes himself getting the advice. In this case, from his trusted friend, Senator Richard Russell, a Georgia Democrat. The life that I knew was going to get in this sort of mess when we went in there, and I don't see how we're going to ever get out without fighting a major war with the Chinese and all of them down there in those uh, rice paddies and jungles. I, I just don't know what to do. For historians of war and the American presidency, Vietnam is a special case. With troves of audio recordings, declassified documents, and other materials, Historians know more about how and why the White House waged war in Vietnam than in any other conflict. A major conference on Vietnam and the presidency was recently held at the John F. Kennedy Library and Museum in Boston. It drew together some of the most respected experts on Vietnam. They included scholars, journalists, diplomats, and top White House advisors from the time, even former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who rarely speaks in public about Vietnam, came to reflect on the war. For the next hour, American Radio Works will present selections from this historic two-day conference on Vietnam and the presidency. At a time when the U.S. debates what to do in Iraq, the lessons of Vietnam are more relevant than ever. We'll start with a talk on the secret White House tapes of Lyndon Johnson. LBJ was president from 1963 to 1969. He expanded America's involvement in Vietnam into a full-scale war. Soon, people began to call Vietnam a quagmire. Johnson blamed the press. He said the media ignored the progress the U.S. was making. LBJ had his White House offices rigged with a secret recording system to tape meetings and telephone calls. Hundreds of hours of Johnson's tapes are now open to the public. They offer an extraordinary view of a president at war. Presidential historian Timothy Naftali directed the presidential recordings program at the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. 
He's been appointed to head the Nixon Presidential Library. Naftali says Johnson's recordings, including those with his defense secretary, Robert McNamara, show how tormented LBJ was by the dilemma of Vietnam. I knew from the start, LBJ told Doris Kearns, later Kearns Goodwin, in 1970, that I was bound to be crucified either way I moved. If I left the woman I really loved, the great society, in order to get involved with that bitch of a war on the other side of the world, then I would lose everything at home. But if I left that war and let the communists take over South Vietnam, then I would be seen as an appeaser and we would both find it impossible to accomplish anything anywhere on the entire globe. The Johnson tapes we have through mid-1966 do not contradict this image of a tormented leader. Rather, they bring Johnson's indecision and agony to life in ways no written words could ever do. Forty years later, to a different generation caught in a different war, Johnson, in his own words, paints for us the bright lines of the box that he felt he was in. In this first clip, it's July 1965. The, the Saigon government has collapsed in yet another military coup. And Johnson's own military commanders have told him that to rescue South Vietnam, the United States needs to increase its deployments from about 75,000 men to 175,000 men. A year earlier, in August of 1964, Congress overwhelmingly passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution to authorize the use of, quote, all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression, unquote, in Vietnam. Listen as Johnson and McNamara discuss the fact that Congress really didn't authorize an Americanization of the war but they would just have to go out on a limb and do it themselves. It's a remarkable admission from the president about the limits of congressional authorization of the use of force. I don't believe if you ask them to go in with you, I think you'd have a long debate. And if you don't ask them, I think you'll have a long debate about not having asked them with this kind of a commitment. Uh, and uh, even though uh, there's some record behind us, we know ourselves, our own conscience, that when we asked this resolution, we had no intention of committing this many ground troops, and we're doing so now, and we know it's going to be bad, and the question is, do we just want to do it out on the land by ourselves? In July 1965, Johnson spoke with civil rights leader Martin Luther King about the Voting Rights Act pending in Congress. But Johnson also wanted to talk about Vietnam. King had been publicly criticizing Johnson's handling of the war, King's side of the conversation can't be heard, but Johnson explains why he feels compelled to fight in Vietnam. I've tried to do my best to, I've lost about 264 lives up to now, and I could lose 265,000 mighty easy, and I'm trying to keep zeros down and uh, at the same time not trigger a conflagration that would be worse. If we pulled out, I can't stay there and do nothing unless I bomb. They run me out right quick. That's the only pressure we have. And if uh, they'll quit bombing, if they'll quit coming in, if they'll quit tearing up our roads and our highways and quit the, taking over our camps, bombing our planes and destroying them, we'll quit the next day. They'll just leave the folks alone, but they won't do it. So the only pressure we can put on is to try to 
pulled them back as much as we can by taking their bridges out, delaying them, by taking out their ammunition dumps and destroying them, by taking out their radar stations and permit them to shoot down our planes. Now, that's what we've been doing. A good many people, including the military, think that's not near enough. I want to do a lot more. But I've tried to keep it to that so I won't escalate it and get into trouble with China and with Russia, and I don't want to be a warmonger. If I pulled out, I think that our commitments would be no good anywhere. I think it would immediately trigger a situation in Thailand that would be just as bad as it is in Vietnam. I think we'd be right back to the Philippines with problems. I think we'd, uh, the Germans would be scared to death that our commitment to them was no good. And uh, God knows what we'd have other places in the world. I didn't get us into this. We got into it in 54. Eisenhower and Kennedy were in it deep. There were 33,000 men out there when I came into presidency. Now, I don't want to pull down the flag and come home running with my tail between my legs, particularly if it's going to create more problems than I got out there. And it would, according to all of our best judges. Uh, on the other hand, I don't want to get us more with China and Russia. So I've got a pretty tough problem. And uh, I'm not all wise. I pray every night to get direction and judgment and leadership uh, that permit me to do what's right. Well, three weeks later, on July 28, 1965, Johnson would announce, very quietly actually, that an additional 50,000 U.S. troops would be sent to Vietnam immediately. And he is immediately worried about opposition. Two and a half months after this conversation, it's already clear to the Department of Defense that this escalation is not working. Uh, this clip does two things. Um, first of all, it, it has a remarkable admission by Robert McNamara that this strategy is failing in Vietnam. This is November 2nd, 1965. And what's equally interesting is that the President is much less interested in that than in the fact that this little-known Harvard professor named Henry Kissinger has just gone out to South Vietnam and has returned and is criticizing the administration. And this is also a sign of McNamara's pessimism about the war. How is your bundle going out in Vietnam? Well, uh, pretty well, Mr. President. Uh, we will have a paper for you, as I think Mac uh, may have told you, uh, in week next week after Dean and Mac and I work further on it in relation to Vietnam. The current uh, battle is going along very well. The problem is that it's not uh, producing the conditions that will almost surely win for us. It may, but it probably won't. And therefore, we're going to have to pose the problem to you and suggest some alternative solutions to it. And I Who sent the Kissinger out there, Bob? Christ, I don't know, but he, he certainly blew off in the paper this morning. I read in the cable that Lodge had asked for him. I don't know whether this is true or not. What did he say? Well, the Washington Post has a story uh, which says, uh, there are authoritative reports that Kissinger will tell the White House that there's not yet a cohesive national government here, primarily because nowhere among the national leaders is there a true sense of dedication to the nation. Who in the hell lets these folks get in? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the, 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 next and <laughs> the next and final uh, conversation is between Johnson and Eugene McCarthy. Eugene, this is February 1st of 1966. The United States has resumed bombing. North Vietnam, McCarthy is becoming more vocal uh, in raising questions about this policy. Um, this conversation um, has two elements that I think are very important. Uh, one is uh, Johnson's increasing defensiveness about 
the box that he's in, and also Johnson's anger at the mess that the Kennedy administration left him and his blaming the administration for the ZM coup, which he felt was a bad idea at the time and continues to feel is a bad idea. What they really think is we ought to be there and we ought to get out. Well, I know we ought to be there, but uh, uh, I can't get out. I just can't be the architect of uh, surrender. And uh, don't see, I'm trying every way in the world I can to find a way to uh, thing. But they, they don't have the pressure that will bring them to the table as of yet. We don't know whether they ever will. I'm willing to do damn near anything. If I told you what I was willing to do, I wouldn't have any program. Dirksen wouldn't give me a dollar to operate the war. I just can't, uh, can't uh, operate in the glass bowl with all these things. But uh, I'm willing to do nearly anything a human can do, if I can do it with any honor at all. But uh, uh, they started with me on Jim, you remember. Yeah. He was corrupt, and he ought to be killed. So we killed him. We all got together and got a goddamn bunch of thugs, and we went in and assassinated him. Now, we really had no political stability since then. The McCarthy conversation is heartbreaking to listen to. This is seven years before the war would end. This is before future Senator John McCain was even taken prisoner, and approximately 95% of those whose names would ultimately be on the Vietnam War Memorial were still alive. The president, however, does not know how to get out. In a democracy, it is hard to tell mothers who have already lost sons that the war they died for was actually a war of choice and not necessity. Johnson's private agony was unknown to the public in 1965 and 1966, but is very clear from the tapes. Presidents who in our system are commander-in-chief, in addition to being head of state and head of government, cannot admit to a losing war in public. It is one of the conundrums of our democracy. The president is potentially the most powerful persuader, and yet fearing public and international public opinion, a president often chooses not to use his powers of persuasion, thus tying the country to what he knows to be a failed policy. Thank you. Presidential historian Timothy Naftali speaking at Vietnam in the Presidency, a conference at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. Coming up... A conflict, if you enter into it, God forbid, must be entered into with the full knowledge that your nation is being committed to the sacrifice of its young men and women. And for that reason, every asset of the nation must be applied to the struggle to bring about a quick and prompt, successful end, or don't do it. To hear all the presentations from the conference, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. I'm Ray Suarez. You're listening to Vietnam and the Presidency, an American Radio Works special report from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works special report, Vietnam and the Presidency. I'm Ray Suarez. Beginning with Dwight Eisenhower, four American presidents struggled with what to do about Vietnam. And so did the men who worked for them, political and military aides whose job it was to craft U.S. policy against the communist government of North Vietnam. 
Today, some of those same men are watching as a new generation in Washington wages war in Iraq. A recent conference on Vietnam and the presidency brought together four key White House insiders from the 60s and 70s to assess what they had learned from Vietnam. This program presents some of the highlights from that conference. Among the speakers was Theodore Sorensen, special counsel to President John F. Kennedy. When Kennedy took office in 1961, there were 780 military advisors in Vietnam. By the time of his death, he had increased that number to 16,700. Still, Theodore Sorensen says Vietnam was never a central concern to Kennedy. Eisenhower had begun the policy of uh, sending in military advisors and instructors. But Kennedy reinforced the policy of sending in advisors. Three different missions were sent to Vietnam. One was headed by Vice President Johnson. All three of those missions came back and said essentially the same thing. Mr. President, you have to send combat troop divisions to South Vietnam. It's the only way to save South Vietnam. And you have to bomb North Vietnam. That's the other essential. And Kennedy listened to all three reports, but never once did he send combat troop divisions to South Vietnam or bomb North Vietnam. He was the best speech Kennedy ever made on Vietnam, interestingly enough. He made in 1954 when he warned Eisenhower and the American people from the Senate floor that we could not replace the French colonialists in Vietnam. As uh, Al Haig said, it was a war, a nationalist war, and they were sick of having foreign troops on their soil, and nobody was, no Western power, the United States or the French, was going to win uh, such a battle. And young Senator John Kennedy said it would be futile, hopeless for us to send combat troop divisions there, and he never did. That was Theodore Sorensen, special counsel to President John F. Kennedy. Jack Valenti was special assistant to President Lyndon Johnson. He went on to head the Motion Picture Association of America for nearly 40 years. Valenti was with Johnson on November 22, 1963, when LBJ took the oath of office aboard Air Force One, just hours after President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. President Johnson would turn Vietnam into a full-scale war. Now, on the day that he had his hand upraised on that airplane, we had over 16,000 fighting men in Vietnam. They were disguised as advisors, but they were heavily armed and they were in the field. Uh, one of the unanswerable questions is, if there were no troops in Vietnam at that time, would Johnson have sent them? I don't know the answer. All I know is that he determined to keep in place every single advisor to President Kennedy and every member of Kennedy's cabinet, and he did. I happen to believe, politically, that was a mistake. He wanted to make sure that the country knew that he would not disrupt any policy that Kennedy had in place. The idea of getting out of Vietnam at that time was alien to him because he, that would look like a repudiation. And then we got deeper and deeper, and the Pentagon would come forward with, we can do this on the cheap, Mr. President, we can do this and that, interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail, do a little bombing, 
and the North Vietnamese will come to the table. But if I may, we learned something in, in, in Vietnam. One, that no president can win a war when public support for that war begins to decline and to evaporate. It's like setting a heavy body loose down a hill. And once it goes, you lose control of it. Uh, there is a, a, a line that I read somewhere that says, the people grow tired of a confusion whose end is not in sight. That's the primary thing that I learned. You cannot fight a war without public support. And the second thing is, you cannot, no matter what mighty army you are, conquering a foreign land, you cannot win against an insurgency that springs from the population with their traditions and their religion and their culture. Never has been done in history. In Afghanistan, in Dien Bien Phu, the American colonies, and uh, uh, you name it. And there's never been an insurgency that didn't prevail against a mighty power. And the third thing I, I, I learned was that if you're going to fight an enemy, you've got to know who they are. You've got to know the, the ancestral rhythms and their traditions, their mores, their customs. I remember one time going into the president's office and saying, Mr. President, I'd like to have you invite Bernard Fall and other historians of Indochina to tell you who are these people. What do we know about them? And he said, I think that's a good idea. Go see Bundy. And I went to see McGeorge Bundy, who said, listen, Jack, he said, do we have our own historians at the agency, the CIA, and state? And our historians know as much as anybody needs to know about that country. Well, as I left, I said to Mac, that may be so, Mac, but I haven't seen any of our historians briefing the president on who these people are. And the fourth thing I learned was that the Pentagon, about 60 to 70 percent of all their forecasts, and by the way, this is done through retrospective wisdom, as I, you know, makes, as, makes, makes us all very smart. Uh, that 60 to 70 percent of all the estimates, the forecast, the recommendations they made turned out to be wrong. Now, I'm not saying, believe me, there are two things. I never caustically criticize any president of any, of any party because I know what he has to go through. And I don't believe that the Pentagon, McNamara on down, were, were developing delusive juices to pass on to the president about body counts and what they were. I don't believe that at all. They just were wrong. I learned in Hollywood that nobody knows anything. And, the, and, the, and, I, and I learned that in the, in the government, nobody knows anything. In Wall Street, nobody knows anything. The, there is a, the vagaries of error infect us all. And when you rely totally on the military, no matter how gifted they are, General Haig, you accepted, of course, uh, <laughs> They can be wrong. Jack Valenti, special assistant to President Johnson, speaking at a conference on Vietnam and the presidency at the Kennedy Library in Boston. This program presents highlights from that meeting. Opposition to the war in Vietnam forced LBJ not to run for re-election in 1968. Richard Nixon won the White House in part by promising to end the war. But it would take another seven years and cost hundreds of thousands more American and Vietnamese lives. General Alexander Haig commanded a battalion in Vietnam, then worked as a military assistant to Nixon's national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. Haig criticized the strategy of incrementalism, matching what the enemy throws at you rather than overwhelming it with military power. 
A conflict, if you enter into it, God forbid, must be entered into with the full knowledge that your nation is being committed to the sacrifice of its young men and women. And for that reason, every asset of the nation must be applied to the struggle to bring about a quick and prompt successful end, or don't do it. That is the second perversion, incrementalism, that has reared its ugly head again in Iraq. How can we believe that this kind of, we send two and a third divisions into Iraq when George Bush Sr. had 26 division equivalents? And he didn't get rid of Saddam Hussein. That was a conscious decision of grave consequences and a big mistake. And so we're there trying to police that up today, aren't we? Now, having said that, we didn't lose Vietnam. We quit Vietnam. We strangled our effort. When the final hours of uh, the bombing at Christmas time took place, and Henry and I know a lot about that, we were very much in favor of it, and it brought Hanoi to its knees. Alexander Haig vigorously supported bombing North Vietnam to force the communists to make peace. In December 1972, the U.S. unleashed a massive air attack that became known as the Christmas bombing. Haig was asked if he really believed that such tactics could have won the war in Vietnam. Of course. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And I saw it firsthand in, in the Christmas bombing. Uh, you know, and I discussed it with poor President Nixon uh, before he died, and he described the greatest mistake of his presidency was his failure to end the war decisively. What really happened was that the president was threatened with impeachment if he continued the bombing. Everyone in his cabinet abandoned him and told him he had to cease the bombing. If he had gone on with it for another three to four months, it's my view a victory would have been to have the North withdraw back to the Geneva Accords Agreements, the 38th parallel, and I think they would have. But he simply could not do it because of the political situation. Alexander Haig was a military advisor and later chief of staff for President Richard Nixon. Haig was one of four top White House advisors to speak at Vietnam in the Presidency, a conference at the Kennedy Library in Boston. Panelist Henry Kissinger agrees with Haig that the U.S. could have won the war with more military force. Here, Jack Valenti, special assistant to Lyndon Johnson, disputes that idea. Johnson's greatest fear, which I heard him utter to me privately dozens of times, he felt that he might start World War III. He used to say that, you know, some aviator's going to drop a, a bomb down a smokestack of a Russian freighter in Haiphong Harbor, and the guy, the pilot, will be from Johnson City, Texas, and we got World War III going on. He had a terrible horror of that. Now, you can talk about military adventures, but when you're president, the specter of another war like that is, uh, is quite terrifying. So whenever I hear people talk about, uh, you know, I'm, and I say this, I happen to have a great devotion and admiration for Henry because I, I think he's one of the great... Uh, political philosophers at that time, and, and I certainly admire Al Haig immensely. But I differ with them on the idea that you go all out 
because going all out has consequences. You will incite people like a China. Uh, remember MacArthur crossing the Yalu, and suddenly China comes in, and we have the goddamnedest mess you ever saw, a bloody mess in Korea. And second, trying to impress upon nations that have no democratic history, a democratic government is damn hard to do. I remember that President Diem was, was assassinated in October of 63, and after that, Vietnam had a succession, a, a kind of a revolving door of new governments, one coup after another. I remember, Ted, I went in to see him one morning. I said, I just heard from the State Department, Mr. President, we, there's another coup in Vietnam. And Johnson just came agitating. He said, God damn it, I'm, I'm sick and tired of this coup shit that keeps coming back all the time. <laughs> You couldn't install a government. Now, we're, we're engaged in Iraq now. We're trying to impress upon a people without democratic traditions, a democratic institution. This demo democracy gets very messy. And suddenly you've got people in power, democratically elected, like Hamas in Palestine, that we don't like, we don't want, but that's the democratic process. Sometimes in this country we elect people that, many, that half the country doesn't like. But that's the process of democracy. Jack Valenti was an advisor to President Lyndon Johnson. Of the four White House advisors at the Boston Conference, Henry Kissinger undoubtedly had the most direct control over the course of the Vietnam War. He was President Nixon's national security chief and later his secretary of state. The U.S. had 500,000 troops in Vietnam when Nixon took office. Critics charged Kissinger with deepening and prolonging America's involvement there, which he vigorously disputes. At the Conference on Vietnam and the Presidency, moderator Brian Williams of NBC News read a question to Kissinger from the audience. Did he have any apologies for his role in Vietnam? Uh, this, is not, this is not the occasion for this sort of a question. <laughs> uh, so if I can comment on what was... Uh, 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 on, what, on what was said uh, before. Uh, we have to start, you have to start from the assumption that serious people were making serious decisions with the national interest and the world interest at art. And, uh, and so uh, this sort of question that's highly inappropriate. The Nixon administration didn't send the 500,000 troops. It found the 500,000 troops. And how you extricate when you are the country on which the security of the world depends. First, how you extricate 500,000 troops technically. The amount of time it takes when you are surrounded by a million uh, North Vietnamese and a million South Vietnamese who could turn on you if you suddenly pulled the plug. This is a uh, very conflict that is a question that could not be dealt with by slogans and by, uh, by, uh, by advocating uh, peace. And all the decisions that we have made had to be seen in that context. Were mistakes sometimes made? That's open to a, a lot of debate. But that sort of question that sort of implies that there's some horrible guilt that people ought to be avowing when they faced a situation of 500,000 Americans. In fact, withdrew those 500,000 Americans. And without the catastrophe that could have happened, that's not an appropriate question. It has nothing to do with 
my own personal feelings. It has to do with how, as a country, we look at ourselves. That serious people make serious decisions ought to be taken for granted. And then we can have a meaningful debate and can come to, to answers that guide us. That way, it's a way of dividing us, torturing ourselves, and making it easy for ourselves. Because uh, there's no reason to suppose that the people who ask that sort of question have a more elevated moral standing than people who every day had to face the sort of decision that Jack Valenti uh, faced. And when you know that if it comes out wrong, the fate of your country and of free peoples depends on it. Uh, respectfully, just one moment. Uh, uh, respectfully, Dr. Kissinger, I'm seeing this uh, theme running through a lot of these questions coming up here, and as the advocate for the questioners and the audiences, uh, you know, uh, quote, you policymakers rip the heart and soul from 58,245 American families. What do you say to those families and the sacrifices they made because of your lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, lack of caring? It's been 30 years. There's a whole lot of of anger about the conflict, Dr. Kissinger. That's what the question was meant to... Uh... But anger isn't enough. You, you owe it to yourself to, to analyze uh, uh, what the implications are and what the real choices, uh, what the real choices were. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger speaking at Vietnam and the Presidency, a conference at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. Up next. There were a lot of people at the time, in the 70s and 80s, saying the press is losing the war or the press has lost the war for us because um, all they do is report the bad news and so forth. And they're turning the American public against the war and that's what's losing the war. Washington had created a great lying machine so there was always going to be light at the end of the tunnel. In truth, you know what was at the end of the tunnel? There was a tunnel at the end of the tunnel, and it was filled with VC and NVA. It was a marvel of modern engineering. I'm Ray Suarez. You're listening to Vietnam and the Presidency, an American Radio Works special report. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You can find out much more about Vietnam and the Presidency by visiting our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can hear all of the presentations from the conference, read transcripts, and more at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. This is Vietnam and the Presidency, an American Radio Works special report from American Public Media. I'm Ray Suarez. In spring 1975, the United States pulled its last troops out of South Vietnam. Within hours, North Vietnamese tanks rolled into the capital, Saigon. More than 58,000 Americans died in the war. More than a million Vietnamese soldiers and civilians also died. In the years that followed, Richard Nixon and his supporters blamed the news media, at least in part, for America's defeat in Vietnam. Caustic reporting on the war, they said, eroded public support, which in turn undermined the war effort. The Bush administration has made similar complaints about press coverage in Iraq. 
journalist David Halberstam covered Vietnam for the New York Times and was one of the most influential reporters of that war. He was viewed as a threat by both Presidents Kennedy and Johnson at the Conference on Vietnam and the Presidency at the Kennedy Library in Boston, David Halberstam recounted a taped conversation between President Kennedy and his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. It was about problem journalists in Vietnam. Secretary McNamara told Kennedy that David Halberstam's idealism was coloring his reporting. I would plead guilty to a Secretary McNamara's description of me as an idealist. I, I think reporters should be idealists. I think they should be skeptical idealists, but the alternative seems to me to be a cynic, and I think a journalist who's a cynic is dead. I think it's very important that you believe, that you believe in a kind of idealism. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't, if you lose faith in the truth, I think you lose faith in democracy. But the great idealists of that era were these remarkable senior advisors in the field. They were marvelous men. I mean, they all could have been school principals back home. They were educated. They thought of themselves as being on the cutting edge. And they found out soon, they found out that Saigon was rejecting their reporter. And they became more and more frustrated um, because young Americans in their command were risking their lives and sometimes being killed. And as that happened, as their reporting was rejected by their superiors, they turned reluctantly to us. And they told us the truth. And the reason was that Washington had created, and it's something that we really have to deal with Anytime we talk about Vietnam, it should hang over this conference. Washington had created a great lying machine, and they and their truths were bouncing off it. And what is a lying machine? A lying machine exists on a major issue when an administration has a policy, a policy that does not, for historic reasons, work out, but where the administration believes it is important to continue it for a variety of domestic political reasons and to pretend that it works so it forces its own people at the top to be in disingenuous and, and punishes those government employees who do not tell the truth, who dare to tell the truth, and attacks the motives and professionalism of reporters who dissent. And gradually, the lines harden, and the lies dominate the policy, and the lying machine has a life and a dynamic of its own. It becomes, as it did in Vietnam, an organic thing. There were to be no real defeats. Victory was inevitable. The policy and the politics demanded it. The Washington rhetoric demanded it. Because when you invest that much more, 600 to 15,000 men, you have to have results, and you have to have results quickly. So there was always going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. In truth, you know what was at the end of the tunnel? There was a tunnel at the end of the tunnel, and it was filled with VC and NVA. It was a marvel 
of modern engineering. Any officer, division advisor, or anything else was to know that if he did not play the game, did not get on the team, he would never get a star. You got in the, on the team or you got out. I mentioned those extraordinary men that I knew, those wonderful men who were the light colonels and colonels of that era. The ones who told the truth and challenged the reporting, not a one of them got a store. And thus was the lying machine created. And there's a danger in creating one. It's like riding a tiger. The danger is you may end up inside. The only people you may end up fooling is yourself. Journalist David Halberstam speaking at Vietnam and the Presidency, a conference at the Kennedy Library in Boston. Other journalists who covered Vietnam took part in panel discussions about the war and spoke about David Halberstam's notion of a lying machine. Among them, CBS television journalist Dan Rather. In the field, frankly, I never had a captain or a sergeant lie to me. When you talk about the lying machine, which David referred to, which did exist, uh, and in many ways still exists, in some ways uh, of greater potency now than it was then, but the lying machine was not with the men and women, and in those days it was mostly men, who fought the war. Uh, they leveled with you. They, they knew what was going on. For example, and excuse my reporter's French if necessary, it was not uncommon for you to crawl into some place with a captain on the line and say, what's happening, captain? And he would say, we're getting our ass handed to us. And you tried to reflect that in your reporting. That reporting would hit the wall in Washington because the Washington view was that we were handing them their backsides. They were not handing us ours. When I came back from Vietnam the first time I was there, I'd been the White House correspondent before I went and we shifted to London and wound up in Vietnam. But when I came back, I was a White House correspondent and I was uh, uh, selected uh, for a special briefing in the bowels of the White House in the National Security Council room by a very high-ranking member of the Johnson administration who had a presentation and he pointed to a place on the map where I'd actually been, which was on the Cambodian border. It later became known as the Hook. And anyway, the briefer was talking about, he said, you know, we're having uh, uh, very effective operations in this area. We're using our armor. And I'm saying to myself, armor, armor? So far as I could make out, there wasn't any armor within 50, 75 miles of the place. And if it had been, it would have been bogged down in these tremendous bogs and mugs. And I said something. I said, you know, I was in that area recently. and." Uh, must be some mistake because there's, there's no armor in there. And he looked at me with the coldest eyes and said, well, you just don't know what you're talking about. Now, a great deal of the difficulty with the press uh, and those who were trying to manipulate public opinion at the time can be encapsulated in that. Journalists went out. You saw what was happening. The soldiers were fighting the war told you what was happening. And you came back and uh, you got a, a, a load of what was mostly fantasy. And one definition of a reporter is one who tries to separate brass tacks from bullshine. And if you went into the field, you knew what the brass tacks were, and you knew what the other was as well. Dan Rather of CBS News speaking at a conference on Vietnam and the presidency at the Kennedy Library in Boston. This program presents highlights from that conference. The session on press coverage in Vietnam was moderated by Brian Williams of NBC News. The next panelist was journalist Frances Fitzgerald. 
She won the Pulitzer Prize for her book on Vietnam, Fire in the Lake. There were a lot of people at the time, in the 70s and 80s, saying the press is losing the war or the press has lost the war for us because um, all they do is report the bad news and so forth. And they're turning the American public against the war and that's what's losing more. On the other hand, there's always been a tendency to make the media into these heroes who simply destroyed the lying machine and who, by their, their intrepid reporting, uh, stopped the war. I think neither one is the case. Um, the problem really lay in Washington, where this machine had an extremely loud voice, and one which carried often into the editorial rooms of the newspapers, the uh, news magazines, uh, television studios, and so forth. Francis Fitzgerald, Secretary Haig said earlier today, uh, in no uncertain terms, uh, he, he believes, as do many, the war could have been won with a different mindset in the United States. Do you share that belief? I do not, and I've, I was found myself very puzzled by his explanation of this, because to say that the Christmas bombing um, brought the, the North Vietnamese to their knees seems to me to be a gross exaggeration. Um, this whole strategy of attrition, the notion that we could kill more people than could possibly get stand up um, and come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, or that we would destroy the morale of, of the North Vietnamese was a key to the war strategy for a long time. And um, it simply didn't work because their morale remained as high as ever. So what would winning the war mean? I mean, paving the country over, you know, I mean, literally. That word was used. You know, a nuclear weapon, an occupation forever, what? Journalist Francis Fitzgerald speaking at a conference on Vietnam and the presidency at the Kennedy Library in Boston. Whether they were historians or journalists or policymakers, most of the conference speakers agreed the Vietnam War produced important lessons that could guide current White House decision-making on Iraq. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger negotiated the peace agreement that ended the Vietnam War. One lesson, he said, is that it's difficult to reform a country's government while your troops occupy that country. In Vietnam, we had one advantage compared to Iraq that we had a fairly homogeneous population. And towards the end of the Vietnam War, there was a government that was substantially in control of its region in Iraq. We are facing a society that is split into sectarian and ethnic groups, and in which therefore there's no national, there's not an adequate sense of nationhood uh, and where even a government, when it is formed, will more likely see its ministers represent sectarian uh, uh, divisions and sectarian interests uh, than the national interests. And the question that we need to address is not whether we should be committed to democracy. Of course we should be committed to democracy but the pace at which it can be achieved and the relationship, especially in situations like <coughs> Iraq and Vietnam, to the immediate security, uh, security situations. Uh, I know the problem better than the answer, but it's one of the challenges we absolutely face. That was former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Other speakers drew different lessons from Vietnam, Pete Peterson was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for six years. A quarter century later, Peterson returned to Vietnam 
as the first U.S. ambassador to that country since the war. The first lesson that I learned after Vietnam was no more Vietnams. That was it. But I'm absolutely convinced that before we engage in the next war, or the next confrontation, next conflict, that we do what so many of the other panelists have said we must do, and that is to talk about it before we get there. Now, for me, when I came back from Vietnam, I said, no more Vietnams. And I also said, you know, I will never serve in another military conflict unless we have a declaration of war. The other part of it, though, was I didn't want us to enter into another conflict where we didn't know the enemy, we hadn't studied their history, had no clue what the objective was, and we hadn't answered the question that I think uh, the first panel brought up, and that was the question of why. That question has to be answered before we engage our troops in any kind of future combat. And the only way to do that is by forcing public debate before, not after, the decisions have been made to go in. Former POW and ambassador to Vietnam, Pete Peterson. He spoke at Vietnam and the Presidency, a conference at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. While conference speakers said there were crucial lessons from Vietnam that might help the White House puzzle out what to do in Iraq, they sometimes disagreed over what those lessons mean. Henry Kissinger spoke for many when he said he understood the problems in Iraq better than the solutions. Others applauded Pete Peterson, who said, too many lessons learned in Vietnam have been forgotten. You've been listening to Vietnam and the Presidency, Selections from a conference sponsored by the National Archives and the Presidential Libraries. You can hear all of the presentations at this historic meeting by visiting our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can download the program, sign up for our email newsletter, and find out how to order a CD of this program. This special report was produced by Stephen Smith and Kate Ellis and edited by Catherine Winter with help from Sasha Aslanian, Misha Quill, and Ellen Gettler. The web producer is Ocean Kalin. Executive producer, Bill Busenberg. Special thanks to WBUR in Boston, the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and the John F. Kennedy Library. I'm Ray Suarez. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. American Public Media.